Welcome, everyone, to the Cato Institute for our book forum today on this book, Adam Smith, An Enlightened Light. Uh, and its um, author today with us, Nick, uh, Nicholas Philipson. Uh, I thought I would begin today by discussing some administrative details, so we'll get that straight and then get to the meat of the, uh, the uh, affair. Uh, as you know, if you've come before to a Cato book forum, uh, we usually begin with some comments from an author and a commentator, and then go to question and answer about uh, 1 o'clock or so. So we should have at least, we hope, about a, ha a half hour or so in which you can ask your questions of our author today about uh, Adam Smith. Uh, thereafter, we go upstairs and have some lunch and uh, uh, conclude our event today. Um, so. The only thing I would have to add to that, as I often do at the request of our uh, conference staff, please throughout the, uh, the uh, forum today, uh, make sure that your cell phones are shut off so that uh, uh, we won't have the distraction from what is being said about this very fine book. Um, I thought I would begin with a few remarks thinking back about the Cato Institute. Uh, everyone knows that we're a libertarian institution concerned about uh, human liberty and limits on government. Uh, some signs of that, I recall, before the construction companies descended on the Cato to build uh, our new building in back here, uh, there used to be in the front, in the atrium, to give you some sense of the importance we associated with Adam Smith, uh, within in a, a small window, there was a uh, first edition, I don't think a first printing, but a first edition of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. And we hope that will, and I expect that will be restored eventually after the construction's done. Another thing that occurred to me, and I think this is also revealing uh, in many ways, our, as many of you would know, our longtime chairman here at Cato uh, is a man named Bill Nuscannon, who uh, worked in the Reagan administration and uh, many other, uh, much other government service and private service. If you go up to Bill's office, um, what you find is that there's three pictures on his wall up there. Uh, photo, frame photos of, or uh, silhouettes of uh, Sir Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, and Adam Smith. And I think of that uh, in many respects as indicative uh, for Bill and for Cato, benefactors of mankind, and uh, Adam Smith stands very highly in that, um, that pantheon of benefactors for mankind. And so it's very appropriate today that we have uh, uh, with us a author of a new book on Adam Smith, Adam, uh, an intellectual biography, Adam Smith, An Enlightened Life. Um, Nick, our author today and our first speaker, Nicholas Philipson, was an undergraduate at and Cambridge Universities and graduated with a PhD from Cambridge in 1967. He was appointed lecturer in history at Edinburgh in 1965 and subsequently appointed senior lecturer and reader. He retired from full-time employment in 2004 and was appointed honorary research fellow. He has held research appointments at a number of leading universities in the United States and Europe. His research interests have focused on the cultural and intellectual history of early modern and modern Scotland with a particular interest in the history of the Scottish Enlightenment. He has secondary interest in the history of early modern British and French political thought. He is co-director uh, of the uh, project on the science of man in Scotland, and he is a founder editor of a new journal, Modern Intellectual History, published by Cambridge University Press. He is past president of the 18th century Scottish
Studies Society, and he has lectured extensively on his topic today in both Europe and the United States. Now, I, ha I hasten to add, is, uh, to finish the intro and get to our speaker, one reviewer of uh, this book has remarked that the book reveals that Adam Smith lived a wholly unremarkable, a wholly boring life. He was excited mostly by buying books. Apparently, uh, the, the most exciting thing that happened was going over the library's purchase plans, uh, according to this reviewer. And of course, he was excited by intellectual ideas. A shame, according to this reviewer, that he had such a boring life. Why wasn't Adam Smith like the poet Philip Larkin, who lived a similar life, but at least he enjoyed the odd, dirty joke? So my question to get uh, Professor Phillipson started is, after all your research, did you come across any evidence that Adam Smith enjoyed dirty jokes? Well, now, that's quite a question uh, for a lecturer to start. I, I not only don't know of any dirty jokes that Adam Smith made or responded to, I can't imagine what they'd have been like. <laughs> um, there is nothing that, uh, as I say, I'm now trying to, I'm, I'm racking my brains after, for, uh, for 10 seconds on this. Um, there is nothing I can think of. Um, in either in, in his lectures on rhetoric and belles lettres, and nothing in the wealth of nations that begins <laughs> to smack of smut. <laughs> and the trouble is that there, there is nothing in Smith's life, or virtually nothing, um, to suggest that he, although he had women friends, that he had any emotional entanglements. Um, one of my uh, audience, when I was lecturing on this in Germany, said, um, of either sex? And I said, of absolutely neither sex. Um, there, is no, there, is no knowledge, there, there is no inkling of romantic attachments of any sort. It is a pity, but I'm not absolutely sure that I agree with my, my, my kind reviewer, actually, who said that Smith, that this, is, this effectively added up to a boring life. And um, I really rather want to um, thank you very much for referring to this in the introduction, because this was very much what I thought I ought to do um, uh, by way of correction in introducing you to the sort of things that I set out to do and didn't set out to do in writing Adam Smith's life. Now, one of the questions I've been asked so often, it's not true, and it's, um, uh, this book has been some time in the making, and I may say the question has been asked many times, what on earth is a historian like myself, who has no degree in economics, who has no economics training whatsoever, doing writing the biography of the greatest, if I may say so, of all um, uh, uh, economists, certainly uh, to one of my lay eye. And I have two answers to this question. One is a weak answer, and it is that Smith's first biographer, Dougal Stewart, um, who was um, uh, um, a partial pupil of his, was his first biographer. And Dougal Stewart's account of Smith's life and works still plays an enormous part in shaping every subsequent um, author's thinking about their subject. My stronger answer to this question, however, is um, that Smith did not see himself 
as um, an economist or a political economist, if we are to be more accurate, um, he saw himself as a philosopher. And it seems to me that, um, it, or rather, it seemed to me when I was planning this biography, and it has seemed to me ever since, um, that what a historian could try and do was to see Smith as Smith saw himself, as a philosopher working in a particular context. Um, are, are you yeah, I'm sorry. trying to say things about my delivery, which is awful? We have to get it up a little bit. You're turning it up. I didn't know they did this magic. Oh, I see. You're turning the thing up. I'm unfamiliar with such things. Right. Okay. Sorry. Um, I now don't. Is this going to go down or stay up? It'll go down for me. So, as I say, um, my intention was to write a, a biography of Smith as Smith saw himself, that is to say, as a philosopher, and a philosopher who spent a great deal of his early career in raising questions which were essentially philosophical questions about the principles of human nature, and found himself raising questions in such terms that they impinged on questions about the distribution of economic resources. Now, in getting down to the nuts and bolts of how a biography um, guided by that principle was to be, to be delivered, um, I had, as every um, biographer of Adam Smith has always had, the primary practical problem to address. And that problem was the appalling shortage of conventional biographical materials. When Smith was on his deathbed, um, he summoned his executors. He got them to take out of the cupboards all Smith's uh, manuscript remains, um, his lecture notes, his correspondence, it, um, drafts of chapters, and one optimistically-minded biographer has even suggested the text of an unfinished book. I'm not quite sure I believe that, but anyway, that's the way it goes. Um, um, and these were all destroyed in front of him, two, day, two, two weeks before his death. And as Smith was one of the most thorough, um, the, one of the most systematic of all philosophers, that bonfire was thorough. Nothing from that has remained, apart from a handful of unfinished essays, or essays um, he had a particular liking for, which he told his executors they could publish if they wanted to. And added to that, there is the problem that Smith himself was a lousy correspondent. One of the minor themes of the correspondence that has remained, um, the, uh, the letters uh, um, um, sent, uh, he sent to others and that have subsequently turned up, one of the, one of the um, enduring themes is that Smith never answered letters. Uh, it's a constant complaint. He was unlike, for example, so many of the great philosophers of the late Enlightenment, like Hume, like Rousseau, um, like Diderot, um, like Voltaire. He did not regard correspondence as a form of communication which is as natural to us as ordinary conversation is, or God help us, email is now. 
Smith wrote letters when there was business to be done, um, and um, he wrote letters when they were goaded out of him by the fr his friends, and they're good enough. But they are not the sort of correspondence we associate um, with the Enlightenment. And then if you turn to the institutions with which Smith was uh, connected during his life, with Glasgow University, where he was professor of moral philosophy from 1752 to 1763, the university in which he said he spent the happiest and most fruitful years of his life. I'm not the only historian who has ransacked the records of Glasgow University to try and track down the records of their greatest professor, and in fact, um, uh, a professor who pay, played an extremely active part um, uh, and a very responsible part in the management of his university's business. But yet, the institutional records are pretty negative. And the same is true if we turn to the end of Smith's life. Smith in 1778 uh, was appointed a Commissioner of Customs in Edinburgh, um, a job that could have been a sinecure, but he characteristically treated it seriously um, as a job to be attended to by a responsible public servant. You would have thought that in the records of any government department, um, even 18th century government departments, the remains of a highly active uh, senior manager uh, must, have been, must have survived, and they don't. There are bits and pieces, but there is nothing that is going to change the record. In other words, what I'm saying is that one of the first tasks that Smith's biographer faces is this lack of biographical visibility. Um, and this presents a problem, well, it certainly presented a problem to me, because in my view, you cannot write a successful biography, um, which you can, you, you can hope people will read, unless you can hear the biographical subject speak. I love voices in biography. If the voices aren't there, it's not biography for me. But the trouble is um, that if one wants to hear Smith speak, the only ways you can do it are by attending to his two great published works, um, The Theory of Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations, and to the extraordinary and, in my view, still neglected series of student lecture notes taken between 1762 and 1763 of his lectures on jurisprudence and on rhetoric and belles lettres. These are the only places in which Smith speaks to us now. And it seemed to me that these were going to have to be placed at the centre of Smith's biography. And what it meant was that my biography was going to have to be an intellectual biography, a biography of a philosopher seen through the making of different sorts of texts, lectures on one hand, great philosophical texts on the other. There was another problem, another preparatory problem that um, I had to address early on. And that is the meaning of philosophy. It's all very well to say Smith saw himself as a philosopher. But what did philosophy mean uh, in the context of his own life, his own culture? Now, Smith's particular trade um, as a philosopher, was moral philosophy. And 
by the time, uh, and, and the, the moral philosophy in which he was trained and the moral philosophy tradition um, in which he was raised, the European moral philosophy tradition in which he was raised, presented moral philosophy as what some people called the queen of the sciences. It was a science you approached um, having, got a, uh, having had a classical education, having been educated in logic and metaphysics, having been educated in natural philosophy, and possibly on the side mathematics. That might or might would depend on your university. And that was certainly the framework of his education at Glasgow University um, um, in 1736 to, 17, to 1740 um, under the great Francis Hutcheson. Um, Hutcheson, um, uh, uh, Smith, in, in preparing himself for the moral philosophy class, was lucky. The natural philosophy he was taught was taught by someone who was uh, highly sensitive to Newton and to Newtonian, uh, um, and, and to Newtonian philosophy. The mathematics he was taught, which I think, in my view, has been grossly neglected uh, by students of Adam Smith, he was taught mathematics by one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of late Enlightenment mathematicians, uh, Robert Simpson, um, the, uh, uh, the geometer uh, and the person who revolutionized Europe's understanding of Euclid. Smith, and I think this is often forgotten, was always a serious mathematician. He could talk mathematics with serious mathematicians and did so throughout his life. All of this was in his background before he entered the, 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 um, the moral philosophy curriculum, before the um, agenda which he was to develop at Glasgow uh, was made apparent. Um, and um, what Smith did was, uh, what I'm so sorry, what Francis Hutcheson did was to present him, first of all, to a critical introduction to the moral philosophy of the ancient world and the contemporary world, and to the snags, to the intellectual snags which different sets of philosophy um, presented to the modern philosopher. He introduced him then to the study, as, as all moral philosophers are bound to do, to the nature of to the origins of those ideas we have about morality, justice, political obligation, aesthetics, and natural religion. Those ideas which shape the civic personality. Those ideas um, which make, make it possible for, uh, um, to live sociably in um, a modern civil society. And he was also introduced to Hutchison's notion that these ideas should be thought of as sentiments which we of which we become aware in the course of ordinary life, and which, if we think philosophically about them, we will find to be controlled by a principle in human nature, the moral sense. Hutchison introduced him to the idea that if you want to practice the queen of the, queen of the, uh, of the sciences, you must understand the origins of these sentiments. You must understand the working of the, um, uh, of the moral sense. And in doing that, you will, be, you, you will be able to function as a free citizen in a modern polity. Now, what, is, what I want to call attention to is what Smith does with this sort of agenda. Because the point I've tried to build my book around 
is that this curriculum, taken, that Smith's variant of this curriculum, um, taken um, uh, um, as a framework for Smith's, uh, um, um, Smith's work um, as a moral philosopher and as a political economist, is really quite extraordinary. And it is much more extraordinary than I believe um, that than historians um, have realized. Smith began his course, or added to his course, um, his own equivalent of the stu study of logic and metaphysics, of the origins of, 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 the origins of, our, uh, um, uh, of knowledge. And he does it in the most peculiar way. He does it by uh, um, inviting us to attend almost exclusively to the way in which we use language. His, his logic his approach to the study of knowledge is to present us with the study of language and of how we acquire it, how we deploy it, and particularly the taste we show, in, we develop in the course of, 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 of human life um, uh, in, in, in using this language in the, uh, in the company of others and in social context. What a strange thing to do to what has been the study of logic and metaphysics. In his moral philosophy, he builds on this. He talks about the way in which we acquire sentiments of morality, justice, a political obligation, particularly aesthetics. Um, and he does two things which uh, uh, um, uh, um, are interesting. The first is he very quietly distances himself from Hutchison's notion that there is a moral sense. We have a moral sensibility, of course we do. No one could doubt that we have a moral sensibility. But is it hardwired in the human personality? Smith saw no reason to believe that. We have a sensibility, we acquire a sensibility. How do we do it? Essentially, through sympathy with others, sympathetic relationships which are fostered and shaped by language. That is where our sensibility comes from. That is where our moral sensibility comes from. And that is where the, the various, various aspects of sensibility that make it possible for us to function as sociable animals. The moral sensibility, the sense of fairness and justice, um, the sense of obligation to, um, uh, um, uh, to our sovereigns, the sense of beauty which attends our thinking about morality uh, and, and the social virtues. Um, and the second thing that Smith does in this is instead of privileging the sense of morality as being the primary sense from which all our other different, so, uh, the, the different aspects of our social sensibility stem, he said, no, it's justice. A sense of fairness, which is the origins of our sense of justice, which gives birth to a sense of justice. Until we have that sense of fairness, until we acquire a sense of justice, we have no hope of acquiring a moral sensibility and everything else. In fact, um, and then when he turns to government, his ideas of, the, his ideas of why we obey government and where our sensibility to men of power um, and men of, re of rank is entirely disgraceful. Um, it, is, it is as contemptible as anything that has turned up, uh, ethically contemptible as anything that has turned up in the Enlightenment, and he presents it as so. Um, 
it is sympathy, our, 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 our really disgraceful disposition to sympathize with the fortunes of the, of the great and the, and the powerful. Our natural respect for life. And this is the, this is the soul, um, uh, the, the, the soul uh, uh, um, pillar on which our, politi our political sensibilities, um, our, our respect for our political obligation naturally um, arises. Now, the point I want to make here um, is that this agenda is really quite fascinating. Through it all run, runs um, a single theme, and that is that the primary characteristic of human nature, the characteristic which renders, which makes it possible for us to understand the world and to understand ourselves and to operate um, effectively um, and happily uh, within it, in the last resort comes down to a disposition to exchange, to exchange goods, services, and sentiments. Um, and as I say, Smith says in The Wealth of Nations, um, the habit of exchange is the, um, uh, is the habit in which we indulge from the cradle uh, to the grave. That principle of exchange runs through every single aspect of Smith's understanding of the principles of human nature as he develops them in his, um, uh, um, in his uh, uh, philosophy syllabus um, at, at Glasgow. And, and what that principle of exchange has built into it is a notion that if we want to understand the principles of human nature, then actually what we have to attend to is in fact something that is essentially historical as a process, something that takes place within the framework of historical time. Our, um, our own moral understanding of the world and of ourselves is the result of experience which is, um, which, uh, which is something that happens within historical time, our own particular experience. But our own particular experience operates within the framework of the conventions of a, civil, of a particular civil society. And what is more, the conventions of that particular civil society are only truly explicable within, the frame, within a civilizational framework within the framework of a pastoral or a feudal or commercial um, or ca capitalist or post-capitalist society. In other words, what Smith is saying holds together and turns uh, and, and allows us to understand the principles of human nature is, um, uh, is something like a deep historical process. And what I want to emphasize here is that what is completely lacking from all of this and what makes this study in itself of, in, of enormous and even revolutionary importance for a historian is that there is no mention of the necessity of religious belief. Smith never denies that a lot of people do what they do for religious reasons, but he says on every occasion, you can find a natural reason drawn from philosophy and history and experience which will provide 
a stronger account of principles which otherwise theologians would import, essentially theological principles to understand. Religion has been taken out of the, of the moral philosophy curriculum in Glasgow by Adam Smith. It has not happened anywhere else in Europe, in Northern Europe, um, uh, um, uh, in North or South. It is a revolutionary moment uh, in the history of moral philosophy and therefore a revolutionary moment in the sort of education which was designed to prepare boys from essentially from the middling ranks of society for a life in the professions and public life. And um, um, as I say, um, because um, I must end here, otherwise no one will get a chance to, uh, 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 to ask questions. I do want to say here that if you want one of the keys to why Adam Smith matters to a historian who's um, of the Scottish Enlightenment, it is that Smith plus his friend David Hume, whom I haven't had time to mention here, do present Scottish intellectuals, and particularly Christian Scottish intellectuals, with the most enormous challenge of how you can rebuild um, um, a public culture in Scotland on the basis of a credible system of natural theology, not the old one that has been rejected. And as I say, I do want to say that in talking about this, one of the things I've tried to do and would love to do more of and will do more of in future is to expose the huge debts that Adam Smith owed to his closest friend, David Hume. At we are accustomed to um, acknowledge the importance of David Hume in shaping in, or partially shaping Smith's economic thinking. We, we, we know about that, the thinking that comes from the end of Hume's philosophical life uh, in, in, in the authorship of the political discourses of 1752. What I don't think has been nearly enough appreciated is the huge importance of Smith's revolutionary um, uh, revolution in the understanding of the principles of human nature, Hume's skepticism, that is to say, um, not only his, his religious skepticism, but his philosophical skepticism, um, and its importance in shaping Hume's own agenda for a science of man. And in, really, I am concluding at this moment, uh, Mr. Chairman, um, uh, um, I do think that what, the, the, uh, what is interesting is to think about Smith as a man who, in many respects, completed and extended that extraordinary project for creating a science of man which, was, which, uh, uh, which disregarded um, uh, religious principles altogether. And it is that that I've tried to remember him in this book. Thank you very much. Very good, very interesting. Now, if uh, Professor Philipson's talk has stimulated in you a desire to, to buy this book, you said, man, I'd like to read that book, pretty reasonable. Here's what the book looks like. This is what you're looking for. Now, if you say to me, Samples, aren't you engaging in shameless marketing on behalf of this book? My response to you would be, I don't think Adam Smith would mind. <laughs> the, um, on to our commentator. Uh, James Otison is Joint Professor of Philosophy and Economics at Yeshiva University in New York and the Charles G. Koch Senior Fellow at the Fund for American Studies in Washington, D.C. 
He received a BA from University of Notre Dame, an MA in philosophy from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and uh, advanced degrees, including the PhD, from the University of Chicago. He has taught previously at Georgetown University and at the University of Alabama. He is the author of Adam Smith's Marketplace of Life, 2002 from uh, Cambridge University Press, and Actual Ethics by the same publisher in 2006. The latter won the 2007 Templeton Enterprise Award. He is the editor of The Levelers. I thought we were against them, but I guess that's probably not right. Oh, okay. Okay, see. You can always get straightened out at, the, at these things. Um, and he's also the editor of Adam Smith, Selected Philosophical Writings, which appeared in 2004. His book, Adam Smith, will be published by Continuum Press in 2011. And he is currently working on a book, and he is very industrious, wouldn't you agree? He is currently working on a book on the moral status of socialism. Would you please welcome Jim Otison? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as you all will know, Adam Smith is one of the most beloved and the most hated, uh, the most cited and yet probably for that reason the least read figures in the pantheon of the great Western writers. His ideas have helped transform political and uh, economic policy throughout much of the world. And his ideas are credited by many for the astonishing and unprecedented growth in wealth and prosperity in the West. Uh, yet, but they are also blamed by many for the inequalities in wealth that have arisen since Smith's time. So we can have today the interesting spectacle of, on the one hand, a Deirdre McCloskey, who argues that Adam Smith's ideas have led to more good for humanity than arguably any single other, that way I can see you better, any other single person in the history of humankind. Uh, and on the other hand, we can have a Jeffrey Sachs who suggests that Smithian markets have led to inequity, exploitation, and environmental depredation. And all of this accomplished by a socially awkward 18th century Scottish philosopher who wrote, after all, only two books his whole life, which is hardly enough to get him a full professorship in an American university these days. <laughs> so this suggests something of a puzzle. Who really is this person, Adam Smith? What were these momentous ideas, good or bad? How could a person in an obscure profession, in an obscure place, in an obscure time have wrought such tremendous effect on the world? Well, there's been, as one might expect, quite a range of writing on Adam Smith from all manner of perspectives. And for full disclosure, I myself have contributed to that. Um, and Smith has indeed been appropriated by many people, including entire academic disciplines, by political parties, by schools of economics, by moral agendas, all to serve their own purposes. So it can make one wonder reasonably whether one might get a true measure of the man. Where can one find an account of Smith that one can trust, an account that sketches Smith's ideas and traces their development, with due and proper reckoning of Smith's time, places, friends, experiences. Well, Professor Phillipson's book, there you are, is an excellent place to start. Now, I have to say, Professor Phillipson's book represents quite an impressive achievement. I certainly couldn't have pulled it off. It presents a creditable discussion of Smith's ideas that balances, on the one hand, the demands of scholars like me for precision, comprehensiveness, and all of the scholarly apparatus. 
Um, with, on the other hand, the demand of non-scholarly readers for a book that tells an engaging, indeed compelling story. Professor Philipson has managed to do what some might have thought impossible. He tells an interesting story about an economist. <laughs> Hats off to you. In truth, however, as Professor Philipson himself um, pointed out, Smith was much more than just an economist. He was a moral philosopher. That's what he called himself. Um, and this moral philosopher sought to understand the principles that animate all human behavior. He spent his scholarly life trying to discover and describe these principles, and in so doing, he articulated not only a conception of human social institutions grounded on empirical observation and a plausible naturalistic picture of human psychology and human nature, but he also delineated a methodology for research about human society that would set the agenda for new and future disciplines of the social sciences. He was the first great social scientist. Now, Professor Philipson reconstructs Smith's achievement not only by locating the key principles of human behavior and social sciences that Smith discovered, but also by explaining both what Smith takes from and how he departs from others. So you get in this book Smith's relationship to his teacher, Francis Hutcheson. You also get fleshed out conversations of the reliance on and the departures from other major figures of the time, David Hume, Henry Home, Lord Kames, Adam Ferguson, Rousseau, Kenney, Tourgeot, Edmund Burke, whose statue is just outside. All of these players fit into this story plausibly and understandably in Philipson's hands, allowing the reader to make sense of the complicated constellation of stars that made up the Scottish Enlightenment. What Professor Philipson has done, I think, is explained in clear, and this can't be emphasized too much, readable prose, Smith's project, as it found expression in the lectures he gave, in the essays he wrote, in the learned societies he joined, the friends he kept, and of course, the two books that he published. In Philipson's hand, Smith becomes an empirically oriented social scientist, a brilliant mind trying to understand what the institutions are that lead to human happiness and to human flourishing, combined with a, the generosity of soul that Smith had um, as a person sincerely committed to using his discoveries to help remove obstacles to the well-being of the common man. It is indeed an inspiring story. I say that uh, in all sincerity. Um, and it, it's skillful telling in this book justifies recommending that you read it. Um, now, since part of my duty as a commenter uh, is to point out and criticize faults of a book, I spent some time looking for faults as I worked through Philipson's book. I'm uh, saddened to report that I had a hard time finding any. Um, this is partly due to the fact that Philipson's interpretations of Smith's ideas are very close to my own. So that is uh, a discovery that I was very happy to make. Um, still, uh, for the sake of discussion, let me point out a few things um, that uh, uh, I won't call them criticisms, maybe gentle suggestions. Uh, first, as a philosopher, I feel duty-bound to raise the thorny issue of the so-called is-ought problem. Uh, this problem, this is-ought problem, relates to the logical fallacy of deriving a normative statement or an ought statement, one ought to, this, to do this or ought not to do this, from a descriptive or is statement, such and such is the case or is the fact. It was Smith's friend David Hume, after all, who articulated this fallacy in, the treatise of, in his treatise of human nature, remarking that he noticed the frequency with which moralists would go from describing a certain state of affairs to immediately drawing moral conclusions or moral uh, injunctions from them. Um, but Hume noted that that doesn't quite work logically. One can describe all the factual details of a murder, for example, without thereby determining any specific moral conclusion to draw from it. 
The moral value is something else that has to be added. One can't simply go from one to the other. Now, I raise this now because Smith seems to have had a foot in both the normative and the descriptive camps in both of his two books. Um, and it's not quite clear, or at least it's not uncontested, how he resolves this. So, for example, in Philipson's account, Smith discusses in the theory of moral sentiments the impartial spectator, as both as a heuristic device that people, in fact, employ when deciding what to do. So if you want to know whether what you're contemplating doing is the right thing or the wrong thing, you ask yourself what an impartial observer of your conduct would think. Would such an observer approve? Would such an observer disapprove? And this can give you a guide to whether you should do it or not. Um, on the other hand, um, according to Philipson, Smith also uses this impartial spectator not just as a description of how, in fact, people make decisions, but how they ought to make the decisions. To be a moral person, you should listen to this voice of the impartial spectator. Well, that raises the question of what exactly is Smith doing in the theory of moral sentiments? Is he a moral psychologist who is merely describing his empirical findings about the phenomenon of human moral judgment making? Or is he also a moralist who is making recommendations about how people ought to live? It seems he's at least the former, arguably the latter as well, but the question is how they go together. I'm sure Professor Philipson has an answer to that, but one would uh, be interested to hear what it is. A similar issue arises in The Wealth of Nations. When Smith declares that it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker, can you recite this line with me? <laughs> it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interests. Well, that sounds like a descriptive statement, and as some have said, a rather cynical one. Uh, but one might ask the question, perhaps that is how we often do behave, but is that how we should behave? So the question again is, what kind of claim is Smith making? Is he merely describing the way human beings tend to behave, or is he making some sort of recommendation? So my first gentle suggestion to Professor Philipson is that it would be nice if uh, he addressed the issue and, and tried to sort it out one way or another. Um, now, there are a handful of other important topics to, wish, uh, to which one might wish Philipson had given more than uh, just a nod or cursory attention. I'll mention one, um, and that question is, how can one reconcile Smith's argument for free trade? Indeed, his, in his own words, his, Smith's very violent attack on the whole commercial system of Great Britain, that's Smith's words. How can one reconcile this with Smith, with, as Professor Philipson describes it? Correctly, I add. Uh, Smith's vigorous, exacting, even punctilious fulfillment of his duties as the commissioner of customs for the last decade or so of his life. In other words, how can one square the fact that Smith argued for the abolition of tariffs, quotas, and other impediments to trade with the fact that when given the opportunity, he applied and exacted exactly those things with great enthusiasm, perhaps even with relish, in 1773, Smith was offered the chance to become the tutor to the Duke of Hamilton. He turned it down, and instead, in 1778, uh, he became the Commissioner of Customs. As Philipson rightly notes, it was surely a mistake. Those are Philipson's words, and I entirely agree. It was surely a mistake to turn down the Hamilton offer because the job of Commissioner at Customs, of Customs consumed more and more of Smith's time, and it also negatively affected his health as well. As a result, it probably prevented him from completing the great and large and tragically never published 
project, philosophical project, that he had been working on at the end of his life. Instead, Smith's connected history of liberal sciences and elegant arts, as his executors described it, on which he had worked for many years, was never brought to fruition. And instead, his notes and manuscripts, as Professor Phillipson recounted a few minutes ago, were burned at his direction only a few weeks before he died. So why, one would like to know, would Smith not only have taken a job that seemed to conflict with his principles, but also prevented him from completing projects that he loved and believed in? And I would guess that no one uh, would be in a better position to address these questions than Professor Phillipson, so I'd be interested to know what he thinks. Um, and on a related but perhaps more philosophical note, one might ask how one should understand Smith's endorsement of free trade in the wealth of nations, um, and also his endorsement of limited government, um, with his, um, as Phillipson describes it, pervasive doubts about the competence of modern governments, on the one hand, with, on the other hand, his rather long list of duties that Smith, in various places, suggested were the sovereigns, including, I might add, um, frequent and gay public diversions. How do these things go together? Um, in the interest of time, I have some other examples, but if we're, uh, perhaps this the issue that Professor Phillipson raised about religion is an interesting one, whether Smith, in fact, retained his religion on the one hand, and what role religion or God play in the theory of moral sentiments, um, or the uh, wealth of nations is a second issue. Um, I'd be happy to discuss those in the question and answer session. Um, another uh, issue that I myself have written about, but I was uh, quite interested to see that Phillipson did not broach, was the, ad the so-called Adam Smith problem. Uh, some of you may be interested in uh, a discussion of that or even knowing what that is. Uh, Professor Phillipson didn't, mention, didn't discuss this in his book. But I would like to close my remarks um, by pointing out what I found to be one of the most important um, and even enlightening lessons from Phillipson's book. Professor Phillipson, near the end of the book, writes uh, that Smith's Wealth of Nations, quoting him now, quoting uh, Professor Phillipson now, is the greatest and most enduring monument to the intellectual culture of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, that's quite a statement. Um, I'll read it again. The greatest and most enduring monument to the intellectual culture of the Scottish Enlightenment. If you know something about the astonishing production of human knowledge in a whole range, indeed virtually every area of human learning that went on during the Scottish Enlightenment, to locate that book as the greatest achievement, that's, a, that's saying a, a, quite an important and uh, a strong statement. Um, what I would like to say about that, that Phillipson's book shows that it is not unfair to say that the story of the Scottish Enlightenment actually parallels and reflects the story of Adam Smith himself. Indeed, the story of the, story of the Scottish Enlightenment is, in a deep and profound sense, the story of Adam Smith. Now, given how profoundly our own world has, in turn, been shaped by the ideas that came out of the Scottish Enlightenment, I think we can say that Smith's story is the story also of us. So to understand Adam Smith is to understand ourselves. Phillipson's book provides a deep and thorough picture of the complex life of Adam Smith and his integration into this astonishing period of learning that we know as the Scottish Enlightenment. And in so doing, I think, Phillipson's book ends up providing an illuminating and surprisingly timely window onto our own place in the world today. Thank you. Okay, we've had a very good forum here today. This has been extraordinary, I think. And now we're going to cap it off with a great question and answer session. Now, uh, as a prelude to that, I would say, please raise your hand if you have a question. 
please say, uh, you might want to uh, indicate your name and an affiliation also, and wait for a microphone to arrive because so we can get the sound throughout. And uh, finally, uh, please uh, have your comments in the form of a question, and if you want to direct them to one or the other, uh, indicate uh, so. Uh, the gentleman here in front here who had his hand up first. Ah, uh, the name is Steve Hankin, no real affiliation, just retired attorney. Um, I wanted to ask, I guess, both of you uh, whether uh, you think in any way uh, Adam Smith could be considered a forerunner of the Austrian school. And uh, when I say that, I mean the, the kind of method of uh, the a fortiari uh, deductive reasoning that the Austrians embrace versus the experimental models that have, you know, come up afterwards and um, do you think, another, the question is, do you think that he pretty much embraced a a fortiori deductive reasoning method as opposed to the scientific method? Well, both gentlemen, but first our author. Um, I think the short answer is uh, no, uh, whether he can be seen as a forerunner to the Austrian school of economics. That's not to say that um, they won't, at the end of the day, agree on many aspects of what the proper scope and function of the government is, for example. Um, but Smith was anything but an a priori theorist. He did not begin with first principles and then deduce from that the principles of government or economics. He was much more of a grounded and empirically oriented philosopher. Um, and indeed, that's one of the main characteristics, I would argue, of the Scottish Enlightenment or the Scottish historical school method that Smith and Hume and others um, are emblematic of. Um, if you want to know what sort of government you should have, if you want to know how human societies work, go and look. See what different, because after all, the uh, panoply of human experiments that there have been uh, offer quite a range of human experiments. Go see in what go look at them and see what has worked, what hasn't worked. And I think that really typifies the, um, the approach of Adam Smith. That's not to say that he wouldn't be in agreement with, say, um, well, uh, for a, a, history, a, a historical figure. Um, Smith read John Locke, read the Second Treatise, was fully um, conversant with the tradition that a Lockean would have represented where we have certain principles of human nature and natural law, and we deduce from that the proper scope of government. <clears throat> Um, that just wasn't his approach. So they may well have agreed in many conclusions, but they would have arrived at them in very different ways. I think one of the things that is often forgotten with the wealth of nations is the, um, the sheer, the, the, the consequences of the sheer richness of that book. And it, um, very, it very much, um, it, it tends to encourage speculation about what might Smith have thought about something as well as what Smith did think. Now, I make that distinction because Smith, it seems to me, is extremely careful, um, both methodologically um, and um, as, uh, as an executant in writing The Wealth of Nations, to produce an analysis which explains why we have got in Western Europe, basically, um, um, in France, in French and British civilization, to the stage we have got at present. And his method doesn't allow him to formulate principles that are any more general than that. The, um, the, the, the Humean underpinning 
of his thinking. The um, historicist, well, it's not historicist, historist, I would prefer to say, um, character of his reasoning does not allow him to explain anything more than the dilemmas and the problems of governance that exist within his own society. Now, the trouble is, in doing that, he raises all sorts of general questions which may or may not apply to the experience of civilization, civilizations lying beyond his own reach. And I think it's very interesting that uh, um, one of the things I tried to do in, a, in I, had a, I may say, many goes at writing my chapter on the wealth of nations, was to strip the, the analysis back to what Smith was claiming he could throw light on. As a, um, um, as a political economist with a sense of public duty. And he, and he is very careful uh, about stopping the argument at the point beyond which um, only the imagination uh, can take us and only the utopian uh, can go. And in that respect, I don't so much, um, though I'm, as I say, a poor economist, I don't so much see Smith's affinities lying with the Vienna School so much as lying with, 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 with I'm afraid, Keynes. Um, I, I think that, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I knew someone was going to say that. But, but the, but the, A whole the, new set of hands have gone up. I know. <laughs> but the frame of mind, the frame of mind, let's, let's leave aside the, ex, the, the, the execution in terms of governance. The frame of mind has much more in common with that of, of, of Maynard Keynes than I think is often realized. We'll just leave that hanging <laughs> for the moment. Uh, Let's, uh, I'm of uh, the gentleman in the second row from the aisle right here. I tend to go about it random. There's no plan here. We did get more hands, though. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Howell Posner. I'm not affiliated. Uh, Professor Phillipson, what things did you learn while writing this book that you didn't know about previously or things that, that added to your understanding that uh, surprised you? The relationship with Hume. Um, I've always been intrigued um, by the relationship between Hume and Smith, um, as anyone is bound to be. It's the depth of that relationship. And um, the thing that I must say really um, got the text moving, um, as far as I, uh, um, I could see, was when um, I tried to present Smith as, some, um, as in fact an extremely friendly, an, uh, an intelligent critic of Hume's project for a science of man as set out in the treatise of human nature. He, it is very interesting to reflect on what it is that Smith does, almost certainly at the very beginning of his career in Edinburgh between 1748 and 51 um, um, and continued in, in, in Glasgow, to read these as um, developing things that, that, for some reasons, we probably we don't really know about. Smith never thought of doing. Why is there no theory of language in the, in the treatise of human nature? Hume's, Hume, uh, Hume, uh, uh, Hume's science of man depends upon um, a theory of language, uh, which will um, privilege the, uh, an understanding of discourse, conversation, and all the rest. But he doesn't produce one. Smith does. Um, again, um, the, the, the historicism, um, the fact that, that Hume has an understanding um, that, um, that 
our ideas of justice and therefore of morality, political obligation and everything will vary in different types of civilization, um, hunter-gatherer, pastoral, feudal, commercial. But he doesn't work it out. Uh, I mean, he makes, these distinctions are there in his early work, but they're not, they're not developed. Smith came over to me as someone who was developing these lacunae in Smith in the most friendly and brilliant way. Um, and um, I, I, that, I think, was the most exciting thing uh, for me to be able to develop um, and, then to, um, 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 and then to carry that through. But it's an interesting question, actually. It really is. The woman right here. Yes, my name is Rosalind Lacey McLennan, and I'm a, a theater reviewer for dctheaterscene.com, and I just survived Candide, which had a very successful run here, a, a, a musical which Bernstein continuously revised because he couldn't quite figure out what Voltaire was trying to say. But that's my basic question, is do you explore... Uh, Adam Smith's relationship with the French and what was going on in France at that time, especially between 1750 and 1770. I believe you're going to have to help me out here. The physiognomists, or the there was a movement. The physiocrats. 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 Yeah. Physiocrats. Thank you. Yes, and this idea that you can guarantee individual liberty, but you can't guarantee the results. And there's just these delightful. Numbers in the musical, you know, in Candide, I mean, the best of all possible worlds, but they make, he makes outrageous fun, uh, Voltaire did, of this belief, this ridiculous, to him, ridiculous belief that came out of the Enlightenment that this is the best of all possible worlds. When there's an earthquake in, in Lisbon, people are living <coughs> in, in dire poverty. And what's the use if you, of all this dishonest endeavor? at being so clever if you just have to pass it along. Pass it along, pass it along. <laughs> That's all it is, you just pass it along. What about it, Professor? No. We, we both ought to have a go at that. Yes. But, but um, uh, well, I must say, I, 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 I wish I'd seen that, that version of Candide. Uh, well, there was one, another version approved uh, by Bernstein himself and conducted by John Mauchery in Scotland um, a few years ago, which was, which was vastly intriguing. All sorts of things happened uh, to it. But I'm not sure that I think that Bernstein's uh, Candide is necessary. Uh, I think it's a pretty free uh, go at, uh, at Voltaire's. What Voltaire himself would have said about it, I don't think. I mean, uh, it would have undoubtedly been memorable. Um, um, but, but the point was, Adam Smith, um, Adam Smith, I think it's important to remember, although, um, although Voltaire does not appear on the surface as a player in any of his debates with the French, uh, um, uh, uh, um, with, with, the, with the philosophe, whether, um, or, or let alone the physiocrat, um, he does not play at all. But that does not mean that um, Voltaire is not there. Smith owned and um, bought. Uh, he, met, he, he met Voltaire. Um, he talked with Voltaire. And he, he once told one of his pupils who, who started to criticize Voltaire, he said, sir, the, the, there, is no, there is only one Voltaire. And he bought a magnificent bust of him. And what that reminds me is um, this is Smith on the Voltaire as the anti-clerical. It's very interesting that in this classic um, uh, it, um, confrontation 
um, between the philosophe or the enlightenment and religion. And the, all the classic um, uh, 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 invocations, so l'infâme, all of that, um, that does not appear on the pages of Smith at all in the way it does with Hume. Hume can, Hume's anti-clericalism, his religious skepticism, is constantly resurfacing uh, in, in his writing. Smith, it never is. And one of, I think, the very interesting things, questions to ask about Smith, is why, when he has adopted a philosophy which, is, which in fact, argues for the irrelevance the philosophical irrelevance of theology. Why, in fact, um, uh, um, and when there is very little doubt that he had, um, that, that, that he had, uh, he was as alarmed by the consequences of clericalism as, as, as Hume, Voltaire, or anyone, why it, he does not allow it to intrude into the center of his philosophy, but he doesn't. I think he does, um, in the following way. Um, so he does mention Voltaire, and he does, uh, Smith does, and uh, uh, the answer to your first question is uh, Professor Philipson does discuss the, uh, Smith's connection to the French Enlightenment, um, but I think there is, in fact, quite an important way in which Voltaire figures into part of, at least, uh, Smith's political and philosophical program. At least I'd suggest this to you for your okay. consideration, and that is the following. You remember at the end of Candide, I haven't seen the, play, uh, the musical, um, but in the, at the end of the book, um, one of the lessons is to tend to one's own garden. Um, this, I think, is a powerful insight, and it figured mightily in Smith's declassing of political philosophers. Indeed, the, the extent to which our policymakers and legislators should no longer imagine that they can apprehend the good with a capital G, the way Plato had imagined that the political philosophers would do, and then organize the entire state from top to bottom in terms of their conception of the good life. Um, instead, what we ought to do is to create a framework in which individuals can tend to their own gardens. We can become a nation of shopkeepers, as Smith said in The Wealth of Nations, and that's all right. You manage your life in the best way you know how, given the talents and opportunities you have and the, um, and the values that you have, whatever they are. The state's job is to provide a framework in which you can do that to the degree possible unmolested by others that you don't want to be molested by. Um, and that's, in a sense, um, I think that's a transformation of the idea um, that whereas God might be the, uh, might be the monarch in the next realm, um, in, and Voltaire wants to get rid of that as well, for Smith, what we're doing is in this realm, we're taking the, um, the political leaders, the magistrates, the legislators, who imagine themselves as something like secular gods, and bringing them down and saying, no, just allow us to have a framework and we'll lead our lives on our own. Thank you very much. I think that's a powerful idea. It certainly figures in Smith, but I would not be surprised, and in fact, I would suggest to Professor Philipson that um, Voltaire might have been one of the sources of this idea. Okay. Would you want to say just a bit more on that? Um, um, I mean, what Jim has said, I completely agree with, and he said it, he, he said it very ele um, elegantly. Um, I just don't, I don't see that it has roots in Voltaire. Um, uh, uh, it belongs to a family of, 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 of views, but uh, um, if, well, I, if I had to track, well. yeah, exactly. If I had to track the makings of that thinking, I would, I, I wouldn't feel the need to drag Voltaire into it. <laughs> um, <laughs> there may be other reasons for that. <laughs> well, we don't care just as long as Keynes doesn't show up again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you know, I always I make that point about uh, um, um, Keynes, actually, because it is absolutely fascinating how the hands go up <laughs> at the moment. Well, <laughs> let's give a shot here in the back on the right side where we're going this time. John Starziak. I've got a question, and I hope it's not redundant because I came in a little late. How do you feel that Adam Smith would support free market, unregulated uh, capitalism? Because I've read several essays, and including one by John Kenneth Galbraith, and they quote parts of Wealth of Nations which diametrically oppose free market capitalists. For example, just one example is Adam Smith thought there should be a legal limit on interest. And though they quote a number of other parts of the Wealth of Nations which are diametrically opposed to free market capitalism. Where do you fall in this argument? Good. One of the um, books that Smith did not succeed in writing was a treatise on legislation. Um, and um, this and the treatise on jurisprudence, again, which are all probably part of the same package, does remind us that, Smith, that Smith's governing interest lies in the role of government in managing an economy. And I think that one of the things I, I did want to do in my book, uh, in fact, was to centralize the point that government, that, 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 that there, is no, there is no situation in which government, um, uh, 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 you could envisage a civil society without government. Um, and um, any government, by very definition, in, in Smithian terms, is going to have to think of the role of government in the management of the economy. And the point is that this is an idiom uh, which is, in fact, all about political prudence. Um, and what Smith, is, it's, it, seemed, it seems to me, is doing, um, and it's, I come back to so, someone made a point. I think, in fact, I think it was you, Jim, um, 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 uh, about what on earth is Smith doing in the customs mm -hmm. um, uh, as a customs manager. So, um, I think it's better to think of Smith as someone who devoted an enormous amount of his time to the realities and the practice of taxation. This is a continuing interest of Smith. Um, and he was consulted continuously uh, by, by politicians on this business. And so it's not a question of should government intervene in, in, in the management of the economy or not. It's the question of how it should intervene. And a lot of the, I, I think myself, the puzzles that some people find in the wealth of nations about the role of government uh, in the management of economy um, come down to Smith's arguing about particular prudential considerations. There is no way um, in which, um, 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 for example, in the, in, in the management of the landed interest, which is something people tend to forget, people tend to talk about Smith um, and, and mercantile, uh, and mercantile capitalism, not many people pay attention to Smith and, 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 and the landed interest um, and to the role of government in managing the agrarian economy. And we should remember, actually, it's something I was very happy to be able to, uh, I think, throw a bit of light on via the work of one of my graduate students, um, the Smith's involvement with the Duke of Buccleuch, probably the greatest, one of the three or four greatest landowners in Britain. Smith is in there with the young Duke of Buccleuch 
helping him to remanage these vast estates while, um, while he is uh, you know, just while he's actually working on the wealth of nations. But my point is this: that um, there is no he never, in fact, is unequivocal about the role of government. Say, government should um, abandon in, uh, intervention uh, in, in the management of trade or the management of agriculture and, and leave it to the market. He never says that. And the reason, it seems to me, is a prudential one. Uh, and the prudential reason um, is that the primary duty of government is the, main, is the maintenance of civil society and the maintenance of sociability. And there is no way in which a prudent government can intervene too directly uh, in, um, in the pluralistic political uh, and essentially oligarchic political world such as the one um, he is involved with in his own day. So, in fact, in, um, the wealth of the, the book five of The Wealth of Nations is very much about the relationship between principle um, and prudence. And I'm pretty sure that the book on legislation uh, would have been a book in which he elaborated that. Um, I mean, we, we have no agenda for it, but I, the, in which he would have elaborated that. But as I say, it seems to me important to remember that he is not, in fact, a principled reasoner about the, pre about the principles of government. Um, he is a prudential uh, reasoner. Um, and as I say, he had every reason to take that position, it seems to me, as an expert on taxation, someone who was very much involved in, uh, in the business of advising governments on principles of, of taxation. He comes over to me in that respect, not so much as a libertarian, but as a Whig. Now, the relationship between Whiggery and libertarianism is something we could talk about for a long time, and it would be interesting, but we better not. <laughs> Jim, would you like a comment on that? Uh, I think I'm in agreement with Professor Phillipson. Um, I would not classify Smith as a, um, an, as one might say somewhat uncharitably, an ideologue uh, with respect to markets. Um, he, th he thought markets were a powerful force for good things. But the, what he was looking for were the institutions that allowed human beings to flourish, whatever those institutions are. Um, and it turns out, historically speaking, um, that markets are an important part of that. His argument for free trade is not based on um, any sort of principles about uh, it being a person's right to do with his property as he sees fit, um, but much more about we all just do much better um, when we allow free trade. And the arguments against free trade are usually driven by special uh, interests. Um, so that's a pragmatic, uh, practical, uh, old-style liberalism is what I would uh, call it, a classical liberalism, if you like. Um, it's not a Nozickian or even a Lockean form of libertarianism. Let me propose that uh, Smith was a prudential libertarian. <laughs> uh, let's go over here. I haven't been over the gentleman right there. 3M. My name's Dan Lieberman. I believe uh, you know Smith was a uh, studied mercantilism. You mentioned uh, he really studied mercantilist capitalism, and I believe he also uh, originated the term surplus value, which people have interpreted as profit. And to get rid of the surplus value, you had to export. I think that was one of his prime contributions to the wealth of nations. And we see today that China is a principal exporter, and the U.S. is a tremendous deficit in the balance of trade. So would you say that China is a great follower of Adam Smith and the U.S. <laughs> is a poor follower of Adam Smith? 
Adam Smith <laughs> is certainly read in China, and I may say I, I live in the hope of getting a Chinese translation to my book. Um, uh, but um, I'm sh I very, very much doubt whether the present government and the, the government for the last uh, um, uh, for, uh, for the last half generation in China um, has actually been sitting there with copies of the Wealth of Nations um, on their uh, on on the desk. I think the intellectual history of policy formation in respect to the management of trade in in uh, in China over the last 25 years um, is much more complicated than that, and um, I suspect extremely interesting, but as I say, I'm no economist to judge, but it comes over to me as a much, much more, uh, a much more multifaceted and not necessarily exclusively pragmatic um, uh, um, approach to the management of trade. But as I say, that is from uh, um, a, 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 an economics amateur like myself. Uh, can, may I say something to that? Sure. As um, I, I would suggest that uh, in the last 30 years or so, uh, China has um, um, been quite surprised. The Chinese communist leadership has been quite surprised the extent to which uh, Adam Smith's ideas have worked. Um, what they've done is affected in, a, in small and targeted ways um, areas in which Smithian-style markets have been allowed to operate, giving people property rights, allowing them to do with their profits as they would like, um, and to exchange um, the surplus value and surplus goods as they would like, and look at the astonishing growth in production that that has enabled. Um, I think it's been very... So is the Chinese communist government um, turning into a uh, Smithian-style, if you like, pragmatic liberal uh, government? Uh, no. Um, on the other hand, are they uh, coming, perhaps some of them grudgingly, to see the power of markets and the good that they can do? Yes, I think they certainly are seeing that. May I, may I make one more comment on that? Um, I think one of the things that we um, don't take enough account of in Smith is precisely what he means by markets. Now, if you look hmm. at the modeling of his discussion of markets, it's essentially, he is taking an essentially a regional view of what a market is. He's thinking of the interplay between town and country. Mm. Um, but also between countries, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes, and between countries. But the notion of moving, uh, I mean, these are the two poles uh, on, 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 on which he, he, he operates. But it seems to me that there's a real ambiguity um, um, and it's actually an interesting ambiguity about what he means by a national market. Um, and I think that um, I suspect, although this is, this is speculative, that there may be very good reasons for that. I mean, was there a Scottish market? Is, was there a Scottish economy? That actually, um, um, uh, in Smith's own time, was it legitimate to talk of Scotland as a particular market? Well, it was in, 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 in some respects, so say in, in relation to the, the workings of the tobacco trade and possibly linen. Um, um, uh, um, but on the other hand, just what the nature of that market is, you know, when you move between the market that is recognized by a simple pattern of interchange between town and country and the sort of market that is determined by, by in fact, 
customs regulations um, and, and, and operating individually. I, I find myself wondering just what Smith meant by market in that respect. Whether or not it matters economically, I don't know. But for someone whose thinking is as precise, usually, on these matters, I find that that vagueness is, is intriguing. And frankly, I don't know quite what to make of it. This gentleman right here has been waiting. Uh, <coughs> sorry, I have a cold. Uh, my name is Vito Tanzi. I'm uh, the author of a forthcoming book with Cambridge University Press on the role of the state. So uh, I had to discuss uh, some of these issues. I have uh, just one comment uh, and one question. You know, the, the comment is that the view that Adam Smith had a very limited role of the state is really not correct for the time. This was an enormous expansion of the role of the state. What he wanted was to redirect the role of the state away, away from mercantilism to a more efficient role. You know, that, that's my comment. The question is that uh, Adam Smith had a lot of confidence in, in uh, markets. You know, clearly, this is very central. At the same time, he was very skeptical about merchants. There are lots of statements you know, in, through, in the wealth of nations and so forth. So my question, if he had, you were leaving today, after two years of financial market uh, chaos, you know, what role would he assign to the state in terms of regulations? May I make a preface before you give you, your answer? Of course you can. Um, I, I would I'd give one addendum to your comment, which is uh, Smith was, he was certainly quite critical of merchants um, and the wealth of nations, but he was critical of many classes of people, um, not just merchants, professors, priests, and other people who use certain kinds of social institutions to their own advantage. That was really, I think, the crux of the, of the argument or the criticism he was raising towards merchants. What often, the, the, the problem we had with merchants was when they joined hands with ministers of the state in order to protect them from competition, to give them monopolies, give them special privileges, which in, certainly would enrich both those protected merchants and usually indirectly then the politicians who gave them those protections, um, but always at the expense of the common man. Um, so it wasn't just merchants that he was uh, criticizing. It was anybody who would try to use the various kinds of social, um, political, and economic apparatuses to enrich themselves at other people's expense. Oh, there's, my, there's my preface. Um, um, I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with your, your comment, and I um, agree with most of Jim's um, gloss on it. I think the important thing is that Smith would not have denied that there was a role for regulation. The, 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 the question of regulation was one that would have to be taken seriously. The interesting evidence of that is Smith on the role of banking in the wealth of nations. I got particularly interested in this because he, he spent some time on Scottish banking and um, um, a ghastly um, banking crisis in 1772. Uh, it's an end of a boom. It's, there's a housing crisis. Uh, it really is. It, it, it's really quite ridiculous. The thing is that this is, um, and, and the, the, the question he comes up with in the context of 18th century banking is that these little credit shops um, should actually be allowed to fall. Fine. But that is a comment. But, but the point that, but I think the point that is, 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 is worth making is that, that he regards this question of regulation, whether there should be or shouldn't be, as a highly serious 
question, and he does not give a universal answer to it. His, his, his answer is historically defined uh, by the limits of the existing system he's dealing with. And we know he took this question seriously because he delayed the completion of the Wealth of Nations by at least 18 months um, uh, while, he attended, while he attended to it. So again, the question of... Um, I'm, I'm, I, I read Smith as being essentially beginning, middle and end, um, a pragmatist. Um, in the matter of uh, um, uh, um, of regulation, but always, um, always uh, 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 accompanied, as as Jim was saying, by a, an extraordinary uh, acute sensitivity to the way in which interest groups operated in relation to Parliament, to government, to the uh, to civil service, and to the ministry. Uh, may I say one other no. thing? I, I guess th this may be a difference between us. Um, I think Smith would be agnostic with respect to a great deal of the regulate. So what he'd want to do is see what regulations we're talking about and what are the effects. Um, but he's not neutral. Um, I think his reading of human history is that government intervention tends to reduce productivity. It tends to have all various kinds of unintended bad consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think much of the argument of the wealth of nations is for shifting the burden of proof. Um, we want to assume that human beings ought to be allowed to lead their own affairs um, without third-party interposition into willing exchanges with others, unless you can demonstrate that there's some very specific reason why, in this case, there has to be an intervention. So that shift, it's not a principled objection to all regulation. On the other hand, uh, it is an important shifting of the burden of proof. This is what Smith has in mind when he talks about the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. What that is, we allow for uh, protections of people's private property, and, uh, and that's, that's going to be it unless there's some very specific reason why, and the burden of proof will then be on you, the proposer of the regulation or the proposer of the intervention, to show why everyone would benefit, in a, and there's no other way to do it other than through third party or state intervention. So I think there is a shifting of the burden of, the pr of proof. So I don't think he's purely neutral with respect. He's going to view these sorts of re uh, any sort of regulation with a measure of skepticism in the sense that you need to make your case. On the other hand, if you make your case, okay, then you've made your case. Well, uh, can, I, can I just gloss that um, um, just a little? Because one of the things, uh, I mean, someone spoke of, um, well, Jim, you did, uh, uh, of um, Smith as, um, uh, as, as one of the first of the great social scientists. Yeah. And as such... One of the key interests that comes through his jurisprudence, which is, which is absolutely wonderful stuff, it's richly textured, it, it's, it's, it's a tough read, but my, it really is a terrific one, um, is how do societies reproduce themselves? The analysis is designed to show at every point how, in fact, um, a regime will perpetuate itself, uh, perpetuate its rule, um, and, 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 and all the rest of it. Now, the point is that... Um, there's a paradox built in, 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 into, this, uh, into, this, into this sort of anthropological realism, if you, um, if you like to think of it like that, that the more effective any period of rule is, the more any regime, whether it's, a, uh, it's the Tartars um, or, or whether it's a feudal regime or what have you, the, more, the better able it is to maintain the rules of justice and to secure regularity in the rules of justice the more that, in fact, people's sense of what is just and sense of what is fair will move round. And any government which then wishes to, re uh, uh, to preserve itself is actually, on the long term, going to have to respond 
to that shift in sensibility, the sensibility of fairness, the sensibility of justice, the sensibility of what it is that government um, uh, uh, can provide. And if it doesn't, it's going to be in trouble. Um, uh, um, and I, I think it may be that there is a, uh, uh, that, that there is a tension between this anthropocentric sense, sensibility that comes through the, 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 um, the, the, the lectures on jurisprudence um, and the wealth of nations. Because what Smith, is, his, his historicist analysis allows him to do is to say that the fabric of British and French society is changing in ways in which its governors do not fully understand. Um, and here is an analysis which will explain that. And it's a profound analysis, it really a profoundly serious analysis. And what he is then saying is that the, the public interest and therefore the long-term interest of traditional interest groups must be seen as changing. And if it doesn't, there's a French Revolution waiting down the road for you. And I, so I would, I, I, I would put the problem like that. And that is, in fact, what under, 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 underlies his, his sense, his, 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 his desire to, to try and teach a new sort of prudence in the governors of, of French, or particularly British, but to a lesser extent French uh, society. Uh, we'll end today where we started with the uh, picture on Bill Niskanen's wall that uh, claims, I think rightly, that Adam Smith was a great benefactor of mankind. Nicholas Philipson has written uh, a book about Adam Smith that is very, very fine on this great benefactor of mankind, one you'll want to uh, consider, I think, for your, your time for reading. And uh, uh, this great benefactor of mankind, I think we have concluded, was a prudential libertarian, but a libertarian for all that. Please join us for dinner, lunch upstairs.